Hello and welcome to Speaking to the Dead. So, Will, who are we speaking about today? Well, you know how Christian rock is like rock but with the fun taken out? Yes, famously. Well, today we're going to talk about the first well-known example of such a puritanical view coming from the 10th century uh, secular canonets. Now, people rightly point out that Harakvisa was one of the world's first recorded female writers, historians, playwrights, and poets. In fact, she, she's at least our first known playwright in medieval Europe, after the end of the kind of tradition in the ancient world. And she wrote about women who were virtuous and used their chastity to defeat men lacking in virtue. But at the same time, she saw her project as one of worrying about people reading media that was too pagan, too violent, and importantly, too sexy, and offering an oddly medieval alternative. And in this, she's kind of the first example of a kind of panic about media that's very relevant today, or rampant today even, um, and appears actually to be a concern that's as old as media itself. Hmm. So you're telling me we are going to be looking into the medieval version of the gods not dead. We are going to be exactly looking into the medieval version of the gods not dead franchise. Except um, it turns out when you write godly works in 10th century Christendom, they're slightly uh, more trigger worthy than the gods. <laughs> um, so it's simultaneously taking all of the fun out of of a play while also um, making it possibly a bit more scandalous. It, yeah, so, so we would, I think, take some of her plays nowadays to be uh, quite uh, like requiring of a maturity warning in their topic, but she doesn't see it that way. What she, what she sees herself as doing is... Uh, she writes in one of her prefaces, there's this issue that people who are otherwise good Christians are attracted by the elegant style of the pagan playwright. Mm. And so she wants to try and offer a Christian alternative that still uses the fun format of the pagan plays, but has a Christian content. Okay, well, that all sounds fascinating. So why don't we get into it? Do you want to tell me a little bit about who Hrodsvisa was and when she was alive so her birth and death dates are well known so it seems she was born in 935 and she died in 973 and so so she's a saxon and she's almost certainly a noble we don't know that she's a noble as in we don't know who her parents but we know she was a secular canonet and that she was at Grandersheim Abbey. So when you say Saxon, we're talking about like Germany, not like Anglo-Saxon. Is that right? Yeah, we are talking about Germany. So the, the OG Saxon. Yeah, the OG Saxon, not the not the watered down Anglo-Saxon. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> She's from what is now Germany. Uh, she's probably a Saxon noble, um, and she she lives and works in uh, Grandersheim Abbey. And Grandersheim Abbey is important because at this point in time, the niece of the emperor is the abbess, and she uh, sets up essentially a second court at this abbey. So it's filled with noble women who don't have uh, husbands, who don't mm. have that connection, who uh, are well-educated, literate, and uh, 
and there's a kind of patronage going on. So at this point in time, there's a uh, niece of the emperor, Gerberg, is a patron to uh, women working in this abbey, including Hrothwin. Right. And, 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 when you see, and when you see emperor, who, who is the emperor? Who are we talking about? Uh, Otto the Great. Oh. Um, and his descendants. Uh, <laughs> right. Hrothwin manages to, to live through uh, more than one emperor. Uh, well, I think some of the Ottos were quite short-lived emperor. No. <laughs> um, okay, so she is part of the like what we call the Ottonian Renaissance then, right? During what is now called the Holy Roman Emperor, the Holy Roman Empire. Yes, hmm. exactly. And um, and the secular. So the, the idea of a secular canoness, first of all. Uh, secular doesn't mean non-religious in this context. What it means is she's not part of any particular religious. She's not made the vows of St. Augustine or any other vows of this kind. Um, what she has made vows to is chastity and obedience, but importantly, not poverty. <laughs> I can I can suddenly see why there was a an appeal toward this abbey by the noblemen noble, or noblewomen of the empire. And she actually has an extraordinary amount of freedom and control. So she's allowed to own property, mm. um, almost certainly has her own house on the grounds of the abbey. She has servants. She may dress as she wishes, and she's allowed to leave the abbey and travel. Oh, okay. So it's not cloistered at all then. Okay, so I can kind of see the appeal possibly, of joining one of these monasteries, right? You get your servants, you get your own property, you can travel. But, like, why didn't they just do that in the outside world? Why did they, if there's so few restrictions on them, what was the point of joining the monastery at all? Well, they didn't have these freedoms in the outside world. In the outside world, they would be expected to marry. So joining the abbey is a way of avoiding marriage and not permanently. They can leave to marry at any point they want. Their vow of chastity is temporary. Oh, uh, so this is for a noble woman then who is, say, getting pushed into marriage maybe, and she's like, well, I actually want a couple more years on the market, as it were. <laughs> so I'm going to go to this monastery. I can live my best life for a few years, and then I can always leave if I want to at some point. Is that right? And, and also um, for widowed women who mm. wanted not to remarry, it was an opportunity to live in a community of uh, like-minded women and also be able to not have the restrictions of being a nun. Well, um, and also, I suppose, as you said, the, the abbess, the person in charge, is women, right? So it must have been liberating for in a certain way for many of these women to leave a society in which men are very much in control and go to a space where they are among women who get to, to a certain extent, control their own lives in, in certain ways. Right. And in these spaces, so uh, Gandersheim, where Harapvista is, is known for its rich communal library. Um, some, and, and as I said before, basically had its own court. And some other uh, abbeys at the time were known to have a large number of female scribes. It, I mean, uh, given the information that you and I here have, Douglas, it seems like it was a place of a rather large amount of freedom in a society that was oppressive in the ways that we know medieval society was for a lot mm. of women. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it does seem that way. That I can really see the appeal of you are. Widowed women are young, any kind of woman, right? Um, and you can go to the place. And, and I suppose the 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 rules not being as maybe as strict as they are in a cloistered environment. I can also see the appeal because you it it allows you to create this um this community of fellow women who are who are together creating their own lives. Yeah, and it also meant that you could have outside influence. So Proctor is, as far as you can in the 10th century, publishing her work. She mm. is not isolated and cut off from the rest of the world in this community. She's communicating. And you can see this again in, she writes these lovely prefaces to her work that gets published. And um, she's talking to people who are reading her work. So, for mm. example, she starts... Uh, one of her books with to you learned and virtuous men who do not earn envy the success of others but on the contrary rejoice in it as becoming the truly great brought this a uh, poor humble sinner sinner sends wishes for your health in this life and your joy in a turn great okay well so so there are people reading her work she, she's part of a community of uh, people she's communicating with, and they're not just women. She's communicating with presumably noble or religious men in society. Yeah, so she's entering this, uh, the Republic of Letter. Uh, it's giving her this. So you talked a little bit about her work, but at the start you said she is writing these as a reaction to something or as a way to fill a gap that she sees in, in the, the market of, of uh, entertainment within the medieval period. So... What is she reacting against? Before we talk about her work and what she's doing, what is she writing to counter? She's she's reacting to Roman, in particular pagan Roman. So um, uh, there is a, a reasonable amount of work that survives and is surviving at that point in time um, that are written down plays from pre-Christian uh, ancient Rome. And they are exactly what you would expect Roman plays to be, um, at least the comedies. They're bawdy and funny and violent um, in the kind of way where uh, people will fall in love and have children out of marriage, and then there will be a confusion about who is the mother of the child, and then it will turn out she's actually a princess, and they'll get married, and everything will be okay. And I think in part what Prakvista is responding to is something that we noted in our episode on Roman wedding, which is that the Romans, while valuing to a certain degree uh, the idea of virginity, did not have the Christian attitude to it at all. A woman was not spoiled by having had uh, a relationship outside of marriage or a previous husband. It was perfectly normal to remarry, to divorce them. Mm. So, so she's having these problems with these popular plays. Um, so her major problem with these popular plays then is the sexual and relationship. She ha- she has a real problem, not so much that they are pagan authors, but that these pagan authors are talking about like um, it, to her mind non traditional, non Christian ideas of marriage yeah. and relationship and sex and it, things. Yeah. So so it seems that a, a big issue she has with these plays is that their attitude towards women is not one where they are um, shown to be virtuous by being right now, so there's too much sex there's too much there's too much sex yeah <laughs> uh, 
And weirdly, I feel like we almost, for some discussing some of these, need a trigger warning, which is that we're going to talk about sexual assault because that's what she replaces is sexual assault. Um, and, And you might think in one side... She's living in a world where probably that's a very um, normal thing. Women are probably assaulted. I mean, even in our society today, assault is a very real, um, is, is a reality for many, many women uh, as something that they have to live with. I mean, it, must have been even more, it must have been even more so for her day, because as we've already mentioned, it is like our society is patriarchal, but medieval Germany even more right. so. And so that this is literally a environment where men have all of the power. So like yeah. if you are sexually assaulted, who would you even report it to? Like yeah. and, and in many cases it might not even be thought to be something wrong on the part of the man. Well, of course. So you have the the old saint stories of uh, of women who um, throw themselves down a well rather than be sexually assaulted, which tells us that there's this attitude, at least in some parts and in some time of medieval, that if a woman is raped or sexually assaulted, it's her fault for not being chaste enough and careful. Well, that that idea that you said right there, that the woman should throw herself down the well to avoid being assaulted, is a theme that Propfissa really leans into in her. <laughs> so what happens often in her plays is that the female characters die either by their own hands or by the hands of others, but they do it to avoid violating their child. Mm. And it's, it's always fascinating to me, right? So in this instance, so suicide is not allowed in the teachings of Christianity, right? Any more than divorce is. And it's always fascinating to me that in these me- many of these medieval Christians, this rule goes out the window when it comes to sexual su- assault survivors, right? Like, people throwing themselves down a well, that is committing suicide. And in a different context would be seen as a great sin. And it is interesting that she is seeing um, multiple partners is worse than this thing that in another context she would almost certainly be sinful. One thing that's interesting in Prophet's plays is you get a picture of a woman who really genuinely believes in the afterlife because it seems so... so uh, so we're going to see a case when we read one of the examples of um, of two women being killed in one of her comedies. Um, and what happens is they simply, they, they ask God, they tell God, we're ready to move on. Mm. We're done with this world. If you, if you would, please, can we go into eternal bliss? And God lets them, and that's a happy. So I think in, in her, this is mind, it's possible that when she thinks about people dying to evolve, avoid sexual assault, this is a happy ending because, because they have, in, in, in being so virtuous, God has allowed them to move earlier away from the pain of the mortal life into the eternal bliss that comes. And I suppose it is something always worth bearing in mind when we are talking about medieval Europeans in particular, that there was not really this separation of the natural and the supernatural the way we do it. Like, the afterlife, God, angels, spirits, these were mu- as much part of the worldview as the sun, as birds, as um, the season. They did not necessarily separate these things. So, um, so like, yes, not only she would have believed in the afterlife, but everyone in her society would have believed, at least at some level, in the idea of the afterlife, the supernatural God. Yeah. And, and this is, I mean, this can make 
reading her plays kind of hard to comprehend because they are supposed to be funny and they're supposed to be good Christian fun, but they're very dark. Um, and so dark, it can sometimes be hard to uh, see the joke that's supposed to be in a scene that involves an attempted rape or a murder. Mm, I, and I suppose, added to this, comedy is something that definitely ages much, much worse than almost any other genre of play, right? Like, comedy is famously difficult to translate beyond time period and culture. Yeah. I, I mean, it's also... so. Um, it's interesting to see what she has to say about why she's writing about these topics. Because I suspect even at the even at the time, the idea that uh, a woman was writing about such dark topics was probably a bit um, uh, unusual. So what she writes uh, about it is in the preface to uh, a, what's called the plays of Thrapissa. And she writes, Wherefore I, the strong voice of Ganderheim, have not hesitated to imitate in my writings a poet whose works are so widely read, my object being to glorify, within the limits of my poor talent, the laudable charity of Christian virgins in the selfsame form of composition which has been used to describe the shameless, the shameless acts of licentious women. One thing has all the same embarrassed me and often brought me to blush on my cheek. It is that I have been compelled through the nature of this work to apply my mind and my pen to depicting the dreadful frenzy of those possessed of unlawful love and the insidious sweetness. When I hear these things, both now and in previous generations, I always think, oh, me think thou doth protest too much. So this mm. idea of like, Oh, I am compelled. It's not that I want to write about these. It's I'm compelled right. by society. You're like, yeah. compelled? Where are you? Mm. I mean, maybe. Um, and, and you, yes. One thing I really like about, uh, about Harpisa is these little prefaces she writes are, you, you know, it, oftentimes you're left being like, well, what was the author's intention? Why did the author? These kind of questions. And a lot of questions you have about her play, she just answers them. In. Why so are you writing you... About such licentious things? Uh, because because I must. Uh, because I'm trying to glorify Christian virgins in the style of the pagan plays. And so one must demonstrate the the other side of the coin. I wonder to what extent she is answering the critic in her head. And to what extent this is a sign that there was pushback. Like, I wonder if this is her going, oh, I could imagine someone saying this, so I'm going to answer it. Or I wonder if this is she's performed them in some way or early drafts have got out and she's responding to actual criticism. So it, it seems, so if you read her prefaces, it seems like when she began working, she wasn't sharing her work. She talks about writing in private, throwing things away. But at some point... Uh, Gerberger, the, the abbess, encourages her to share her. And then it seems that she is in communication with people. She, in some of her prefaces, it, it seems clear she's responding to responses that she's had. Mm. Um, so, I mean, one thing that's kind of interesting is, so, so Rutgers' work um, basically disappears. It's rediscovered in the 1600s and is republished. And, and since then... 
as always happens with, with older female authors, there's an authenticity question. The people go, well, was this, was, was it discovered or was it created? Right. And, and it's pretty clear that this is just not the case because we have contemporary sources talking about her. she clearly existed and wrote this work, but you get these, these questions and it seems they showed up in her very time. So she writes in the preface to her poetic works, when I started, timidly enough, on the work of composition, I did not know what authenticity of my, I did not know that the authenticity of my materials had been questioned. On discovering this to be the case, I decided, decided not to discard it, because it often happens that what is reputed false turns out to be true. In these circumstances, I shall need to as much assurance in defending this little work as in improving. So there she is directly appealing to her readers to defend her against accusation that she did not in fact write her own. It's always fabulous. Like, I do not understand why these authenticity questions... Like, what is there to be gained from this mysterious man, presumably, like, <laughs> creating a character <laughs> and writing these fake plays? Like, if that was his intent... It's 1600, it's not like it's like... Like, like, what's the idea that there's some... I, I don't know, it's 1600, it's not known for its, like, progressive liberal values, right? The idea of some some reformation printer going, oh, I know, I'll get some people popular about this by, like, faking this. It just seems always so stupid. And as you say, it always seems to be we're talking about historical female writers. There's always yeah. this idea. People are so much more concerned about um, yeah. And I think it's fascinating I, that this was also true in the 10th century. Yes, yes. Yeah. Idea, idea of people at Otto the Great's court going, this is woke nonsense. Women writing a Scott. Right. And I think it, it always reveals more about the person who presses the issue than it reveals about the work itself. Oh, sure. Because um, yeah. you say this, this happens with, um, you know, name a historic female writer and you'll be able to find it. Oh, Heloise, right? So the one we did a few months ago, Heloise is often talked. Hers is not so much authenticity, but like, to what extent is she just um, just parroting the words of Abelard? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And w what's also interesting, so there's, so she writes these prefaces, they're very fun, they're nice to read. I, I recommend reading them. You can get them on Project Gutenberg. Um, and it seems like she has a bit of imposter syndrome. Um, it's now, there's a question, right, because there will be a style of writing, um, and it might be that the style of writing at the time was very humble and, and required to declare, you know, oh, I, I do nothing right, and, and I just look for your forbearance. Um, but it does feel like um, she, kind of in writing these prefaces, doesn't realize um, or, or, or is kind of worried that people have mistaken her um, for being able to do something that she's not actually able to do and that it might all come crumbling down. Um, well, I suppose that makes sense if we are thinking of her as the first European woman of letter that we have record of. It makes sense that she would feel a certain trepidation about that. Like, because yeah. she must be aware that there weren't women writers around about um, writing these kinds. So, yeah, that makes sense that she would have some form of imposter syndrome or at least trepidation about making this public. Especially yeah, if she gets, and people are telling her you faked it, you made you made yeah, a man write yeah. it for you. And then, so she she's uh, she's also one of the first uh, historians to come out of the the Germanosphere. 
And it seems she wrote her history on command of uh, Gerberg, the abbess. Um, and there's this wonderful line where she writes, it seems like she, if you take the preface on face value to the history, she didn't want to write the history. She didn't think she was going to be able to do it, but she was kind of forced to do it. And there's this wonderful line she ends with, which is, why should I fear the judgment of others? Since if there are mistakes, I should fall only under your censure. And why should I not escape reproofs, seeing that I was anxious to keep silent? I, I should deserve blame if I sought to withhold my work. In any case, I leave the decision to you and your friend. So this this kind of like, you made me write this, so I shouldn't be blamed if it's bad. Really, you should be, <laughs> because you're the one who told me to write it. <laughs> Well, that's great. She sounds like a um, she sounds like an interesting interesting lady. So, what about what about her plays? We've been talking a lot about her preface. What are our plays yeah. like? So her plays. So so of the so she thinks the pagan writers are far too lucid. However, she makes a exception for Terence. So Terence is a writer from the second century uh, before Common Era BCE, um, mm. and he's a Roman African playwright. And he's known for being tame. <laughs> nice, good pre-Christian fun. Yes, exactly. So, so Terence is uh, the most Christianly acceptable of the uh, pagan playwrights, um, and he writes these plays that that are still not acceptable to practices standards. So, we're going to see one called Fair. Uh, Andrian, or we're going to read quickly a sample from one called Fair Andrian to kind of give an idea of the style that Trotvista is uh, developing from, the style that she's basing her work on. And the idea in Fair Andrian is there's this uh, kind of comedy of error where um, a young noble woman is uh, detached from her family, grows up, uh, outside of the noble sphere of Rome, comes back, is mistaken for a courtesan, and gets pregnant by a nobleman who then wants to do the right thing and marry her. And then there are all these attempts to stop the marriage because they think it's between a nobleman and a courtesan. And then in the end, it's revealed that she is in fact a noblewoman and everything's fine and they get married. I can see why... Um, uh... Trots Vista was um, was blushing. Yes. <laughs> oh no! What courtesan? Out of red long <laughs> This may have failed um, to meet proper Christian standards. But we're yes. going to read a quick sem- sample where uh, Simo, uh, one of the fathers, and Davos, his incompetent servant, are um, attempting to figure out, uh, or Simo is trying to figure out. Uh, What's going on with his son's course? Okay, well, shall I read Simo, as I always see myself as more of the kind of aristocrat on, on the podcast? <laughs> All right, and I'll be, I'll be Davos, the incompetent servant. Yeah. Okay, here it goes. The villain, what does he say? My master, I didn't see him. Davos? Well, what is it? Just step this way to me. Oh, what do they want? What are you saying? About what? Do you ask the questions? There's a report that my son's in love. And so what I want to draw out of that um, sample is there's a, a kind of, I mean, 
we may not have done the best reading, but there's this comedic patter going on, right? There's this tempo about mm. um, back and forth lines that are supposed to be uh, kind of amusing in this confusion. So uh, Samo and Davis are occasionally speaking to themselves and the other one over here. And so you could imagine with a full theatre production and people moving about, this would actually be... Yeah, and it would be presumably more obvious than in our reading as there would be a physicality, moving toward yes. the audience, moving away to the audience, things like that, yeah. And so now we're going to have a sample from Hot Vista's uh, Gallicanus, which is a story about a Roman general who falls in love with the Emperor Constantine, a Christian daughter, who is, and the daughter has promised you, so Constantine, so Constantine and Constance, confusing. Constance has promised to be a uh, virgin. And so um, the play is about essentially her tricking Gallicanus into becoming a Christian and promising to allow her to keep her vow of virginity. Uh, but we're going to read a second, the section where Gallicanus admits to Constantine that he's in love with Constantine. Okay, so I'm going to upgrade myself to emperor in this table yes. and make myself Constantine. <laughs> oh, I, I've managed to upgrade myself to a noble in this section. Yeah. Okay, here goes. The reward deemed by the Senate, the most glorious a man can desire, has never been withheld from you, and never shall be. You enjoy the freedom of my court, and the highest honour among those who surround you. I know, but I am not thinking of that. If you have other ambitions, you must tell me. I have. What are they? Dare I tell you? Of course. You will be angry. Not at all. Are you sure? Quite sure. We will see. I say you will be indignant. Your fears are groundless. Come, speak. Since you command me, I will. I love Constance. I love your daughter. Da-da-da. And you can imagine again, right, there's this back and forth patter with uh, Gallicanus wavering and then the emperor trying to force something out of him. And it's kind of funny because the status of these men... Uh, it's kind of amusing to imagine the emperor in a general kind of wavering back and forth in this way, trying to squeal information. Yes, for, for any British listeners, I would say, you might recognise the certain cadence of the pantomime, right? Yes, this, exactly. This folk, or folk play. So in China, for exactly. instance, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of like folk plays where it has a similar pattern. It's back, forth, back, forth. And, and, and a lot fact, of the, again, is in the physicality of it rather than the, rather than the actual... And I will put money on the British panto having its roots in the liturgical plays and the circuit plays. Mm. Um, which, so th this is, in a way, the first example that we have of a liturgical play. So let me let me ask then. So we've been talking about the the physicality of the play. Do we know anything about how this play was performed? Like, are there, for instance, um, are there, for instance? Are there, for instance, stage directions to these plays? So there are. So, so this is a difference between um, uh, Terence's plays and Hartvis's. Terence's plays have stage directions. Hartvis's don't. So Hartvis's plays, I think the majority view it's fair to say is that they're a closet plays. So these are plays that are read but not performed. Mm -hmm. um, and so you could imagine uh, secular canesses in uh, the Abbey sitting together and, and reading as part. Yeah, just like we did. Yeah. Just like we did. Um, and 
to be and uh, we also should keep in mind that in an age before the internet people put a lot of time and effort into uh performance into individual and so um we should imagine that they were probably much better at this than we are yeah yeah definitely um yeah because you could imagine an instance especially if it is intended for a female audience people putting on funny funny voices putting on bits of costumes yeah things. um however it is possible that these were played in the court of one of the authors that's a minority opinion but it's not absurd um to think that they may have been played uh well also i think so like if we think of a much later playwright shakespeare there are also famously not very many stage threads in shakespeare because again the idea is that the playwright was there right so like yes. there, aren't, there isn't a need for stage direction because you could just ask Fista, and if you're performing it within the abbey or even as you say her abbey has connections to the court right she's you said the abbess is the niece so it's conceivable that she could have you could have just asked her oh what are we meant to do here yes um now they've certainly been play they've certainly been performed since the turn of the 19 um so even if they weren't performed in the day we can say conclusively that Trotvista's plays have been performed. Well, yeah, since the advent of modern media, closet plays have went a bit out of fashion. <laughs> yes, yes, as as have the skills to uh, read them. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think, right, so that, that what I want, what I think we can get from those two samples is that she is, um, there is something uh, Terencean about what she's doing. She's kind of writing in this tradition of the... Uh, the Roman plays, but she's again, she's uh, Christian rockizing <laughs> the plays. Yeah, so it's like the the world outside the religion, what we would call the secular world, has this thing that people like. Can I use the genre but insert Christian ideas to it? Which, as you say, is very similar to Christian rock or to something like Pure Flix, right? You're taking genres that are popular in the secular world and seeing if you can create something um, that, that is more in keeping with... Yeah. And there's, so I, I would say, particularly if you read the... Um, if, you, if you think about what she's concerned with and if you read the prefaces, it's very easy to empathise and understand where her is coming from. She, she feels like she's appealing to kind of universal concerns. You know, um, people everywhere think media is too violent and too sad. And... People everywhere have to deal with critics and feelings of unworthiness and frustration that their boss made them read write a history of the Abbey despite not feeling ready. To. Um, <laughs> but the content of the play is quite um, different, I think, from what we would have in media. And the idea that they could be funny around these topics is also um, quite foreign. So, you know, Ricky Gervais may think he's edgy, but he really doesn't have much on a 10th century uh, secular canonist. It, um, and so I think to, a good way to illustrate this is to look at uh, Dulcetius, which is supposed to be her funniest play. So Dulcetius is a story about Sicinius, uh, who is a uh, Roman governor famous for persecuting Christians, and three Christian sisters uh, Clonia, Agapa, and Irina. And the play is basically, they get taken, they get told, they've, they've made 
as is common in Hrothvistor's plays, they've made promises of custody. They get told that they have to marry and convert. They refuse. Multiple attempts are made to assault them while they're imprisoned, and they eventually are all murdered. Doesn't and sound like that. Doesn't sound like a laugh riot, if I'm honest. Yeah, this this is this is this is laugh out loud. So this is what I mean by that. There's something very different about the kind of worldview that that has this as a topic that can be funny, have amusement around it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so one example of this is. Um, uh, at one point, the sisters are moved to the kitchen so that they so that uh, they can be assaulted. Um, but because the kitchen is dark, they hide, and the man who comes to assault them thinks that the pots and pans are the sisters. So he assaults the pots, and um, covering himself in soot. He then goes outside, whereupon people seeing him covered in soot think he's a demon. And so there's this kind of comedy of error around a topic that we don't normally have comedy of errors. Sure, and but you can see like the comedy comedy aspect of it, right? Even yeah. even although the, the assault is not a subject that we would try, it would, we would see it as only it can be a. Tra- but yeah. you can kind of visualize watching you, on stage going about and trying to assault a pot in a pan, and it being yes. kind of funny, like a, or at yes. least be a strange thing you're watching. Yes, yes. I know, I, I think you can see... Something of the pantomime about that setup. Yeah. Not the sexual assault, but the, the idea that you go in and you do this thing that is obvious. Yes. No, exactly. The, the, the kind of physical comedy is something that yeah. still uh, that still vibes with comedy that we have nowadays. And I think that that's... Uh, I would take a bet that physical comedy is one of the comedies that communicates most well across time, culture, and language. Well, there's a question. What language were these written in? Are these Latin plays? Yes, yes, they're all written in Latin. Yeah. Mm. She is a well-educated uh, woman in medieval Europe. She is writing it. Mm. Uh, which, which presumably limits the audience, even in yeah. 10th yes. century. <laughs> yes. Yeah, these are not being performed in the public square. Mm. Um, so I was thinking maybe we could do a reading of a section of Dol- uh, Dulcetius, and this is the section in which uh, two of the women, uh, Chionia and Agrippa, are burnt. We'll see how how she approaches this topic. Right. So the characters here are Sinius, uh, Clonia, soldiers, and Agrippa. If we're carrying on our theme, that means you should be Sinius, and I'll also give you Agrippa. And okay, Clonia, soldiers. So I'll be the Roman governor, Sinius. I'll get my. Okay, right. <clears throat> Let's go for it. I'll do my best Roman governor voice. Do not be obstinate. Sacrifice to the gods, or by order of the emperor Diocletian, I must put you to death. Your empire, emperor has ordered you to put us to death, and you must obey. As we scorn his decree, if you spare us out of pity, you also would die. Come, soldiers, seize these blasphemers and fling them alive into the flame. We will build a pyre at once. The fierceness of the fire will soon put an end to their insolence. Oh, Lord, we know thy power. It would not be anything strange or new if the fire forgot its nature and obeyed thee. 
but we are weary of this world, and we implore thee to break the bonds that chain our souls, and to let our bodies be consumed, that we may rejoice with thee in heaven. <sighs> oh, wonderful, most wonderful. Their spirits have left their body, but there's no sign of any hurt. Neither their hair nor their garments, much less their body, have been touched by the flames. Bring Irina here. Oh, there she is. So, I mean, it, it's a weird section of a play, right? Yeah, yeah, it's very, it's a very strange, um, yeah, it's very strange because uh, there is obviously, like, you can see the the obvious Christian message, right, where we are, um, Agape, my character who went way off pantomime name, is like <laughs> basically stating God is all powerful, but we are asking him to not say like. Yes. This is not a sign that God has not saved us. It's that we want to go to heaven. Um, yes. Yeah, so you can see like a very, the, the clear Christian ideological message within the But it is also, as you say, it's not obvious, uh, getting rid of our silly voices, it's not obvious clearly to me, just reading this, where exactly the laughter is made. So I, I think the laughter is meant to be in the weird temporality. So the first time I read uh, this is plays i was kind of confused they felt just badly written but having reread them i think i have an appreciation for how it's actually supposed to. so i think right so so um basically uh Korea denies the emperor emperor and he says well fling them into the fire and the soldiers just appear a pyre mm. um so there's this kind of i think almost amusing kind of that comes in in how the actions are going in. Let's fling her into the fire. Oh, we just have one right here. Let's put an end to their insolence. God help me. Oh, she's she's not been touched. Uh, where's Irina? There she is. Right, that you can almost see the... In fact, that is a panto move, right? That two mm. people will be discussing something and then someone will come up and they'll be standing on the corner of the... Yeah, so you're... Um what would we say, like, you're kind of um, playing about with breaking almost, it's, it's going almost, it's very meta, it's very metaphysical, right? Yeah. So the 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 characters are almost aware that they are on a play, but not quite. Right. The comedy yeah. is in the breaking of expectations, and the expectations that are broken here are ones to do with time and space mm. and where people would be. And, and as you say, it's kind of playing on the fact that um, you're not, you're not in a physical, you know, you're on a stage, not a physical space. So Irina's character or, or reader, right, if these are being read, is just sitting there across from you in the circle. Um, yeah. And presumably the convention she is playing about with comedy would just be much more apparent to her audience as to us. Right, yeah, absolutely, right? This was um, almost certainly she's working within... Um, so even even though she's the first to kind of that, that we know of to kind of write down and publish these plays, she's presumably working within a community in which um, women who work who are are canonesses read to one another, talk to one about other about these things, write stuff down, share writings and storytelling, things like this, and and that's lost. We don't know what that community looked like, what the norms were, what the in jokes were. Yeah. Um, 
Well, and presumably, uh, well, something we could say, right, is like, well, she is the first surviving female author. It is possible that she is not the first one. It is possible that, as you say, there are the, for many female authors, right up until like the Victorian period. So, for instance, an example here is Jane Austen. Jane Austen doesn't start off writing a book that's going to be published. She writes it for her family. And then later yeah. it becomes published uh, because she happens to live in a different time. And we can imagine that for a lot of human history, this is what educated men did. They wrote yeah. stories for their families and friends. And it's just that these haven't survived to us. These haven't been handed to right. us. And, and calling back to the Roman wedding episode, right? We knew that women were involved in that conversation because some of the letters were written to women. We mm. just don't have their replies because no one thought the replies were worth preserving. It's difficult. A any document that we have nowadays from a thousand, two thousand years was either preserved by accident, as many, uh, as say, the, the clay tablets that we get from Samaria are, or a lot of the parchment fragments from ancient Egypt are, or a lot of time and effort when preserving it. And unfortunately, when a lot of effort and time and effort goes into preserving it, we get a sample that is extremely biased by the values of the people involved in preserving it. And mm -hmm. so we just don't receive the work well, that women did. Yeah, so there is this theory in cultural studies of who is worthy of being seen as a narrator, right? And for medieval Europe, or for ancient Europe for that matter, the person who is worthy of narrating their story is always the But So that leads me on to actually a question then. With these plays, we have multiple of them, so I'm assuming people have went into an effort to preserve them. So how popular were these plays? Do we have any way of knowing? Um, not really, except, as you say, they exist. Um, the, so, so in the, again, in the 1600s, uh, they get rediscovered, republished. Um, at that point, they're safe, right? Uh, we're talking about a period where, where you do have print presses. We do have good preservation of at least things that are public period compared to, uh, the 900s. Um, so, I mean, that suggests that. The, the the mere fact that they survived suggests something about their popularity, right? It well, then more than one of them survived completely, yeah. right? So you can imagine if a fragment of one survived, it's an accident. But if multiple plays are surviving in their entirety, it suggests that someone saving them. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, so, uh, I mean, that, that's... But again, it's probably, in many ways, if they hadn't been uh, republished in the 16th century, they might have been long. Mm. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, I do like the idea, though, that 600 years after their publication, some print guy somewhere read this and set a comedy about sexual assault. That'll do well. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, possibly possibly um, values toward women had not moved on so much six, 700 years <laughs> since they had first been published. Yeah. Well, so that was a fascinating insight into the Christian rock of the 10th century well is there anything else you would like to tell us before before we go no i would just say um go and read Vista's prefaces it will take you all of 10 minutes and um very much if the idea of this podcast is to you know uh keep a conversation going with people who have who have only left us uh traces of their thoughts uh Vista, left a very rich and, and kind of um, conversational trace 
uh, and they're a delight to read. Brilliant. Well, um, thank you, the listener, for listening. Um, please remember to share and subscribe this episode if you've liked it. Yes, and uh, you can find us on Twitter at speaking underscore dead. And uh, what are we doing next month, Douglas? So in our next episode, um, I thought we would look at a man who has fascinated me since um, a very early age, which is a man called Robert Owen, who founded a factory in Scotland called New Lanark. Um, he is sometimes called the father of British socialism. And he had some interesting ideas about how it is actually better to not treat your uh, not treat your factory workers like cogs in the machine, and you should actually treat them like human. Radical for the 1800s, and possibly still today.